Hi, this is Patrick Ai, and before you get to the podcast you've actually downloaded, I just wanted to tell you that my new podcast, 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter, as well as a brand new series of 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, are now available to download. But please listen to this one first. Thanks. I am really sad about Facebook. I got involved with the company more than a decade ago and have taken great pride and joy in the company's success until the past few months. Now I am disappointed. I am embarrassed. I am ashamed. This is Roger McNamee reading an email he wrote in October 2016. It was originally intended for an audience of just two people, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg. McNamee had been a key advisor to Zuckerberg and an investor. He helped bring Sandberg to Facebook from Google. But he wanted both of them to know that he had come to view Facebook as a monster. With more than 1.7 billion members, Facebook is among the most influential businesses in the world. Whether they like it or not, whether Facebook is a technology company or a media company, the company has a huge impact on politics and social welfare. Every decision that management makes can matter to the lives of real people. Management is responsible for every action. Just as they get credit for every success, they need to be held accountable for failures. Recently, Facebook has done some things that are truly horrible, and I can no longer excuse its behavior. I'm Mike Wendling, and you're listening to Trending, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of social media. I've been talking to Roger McNamee, a Facebook insider who has turned into one of the company's most high-profile critics. More generally, he's concerned about the impact that big tech companies are having on society. Roger is 62 years old, a self-described tech evangelist, and over a decades-long career, he's made a fortune from investing in startups, Facebook included. But, he says, he became increasingly worried about the company, and now he accuses it of everything from undermining democracy to damaging public health. He's concerned about how much data we're allowing to be gathered about ourselves and what it's being used for. And he's laid out his arguments in a new book called Zucked, which makes his case for greater government regulation of social media. At the same time, he also believes individuals have a vital role to play as well. I began my conversation with him by asking about his first dramatic encounter with Facebook's founder. I first met Mark Zuckerberg in 2006. He was 22. The company was two years old, coming off a $9 million year when it was mostly selling pizza delivery services. The product was very primitive. It was basically just an image people's uh, personal information. There was no news feed. And the only people using it were high school students and university students. I was asked to take a meeting with Mark by one of his colleagues who said there was a crisis going on and he needed to speak to somebody who was experienced, objective, trustworthy, and not conflicted. So imagine the scene. He comes to my office. I had a firm in those days with Bono, the front man for you too. And our goal was to invest in companies at the intersection of media and technology. Mark comes in there. He sits down and I explain, Mark, 
before you say anything, I need to give you some context for what I'm looking for and what I believe. I said, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer $1 billion for Facebook. And everybody you know, your parents, your board of directors, your management team, they're all going to tell you to take the money. Well, I want you to know, Mark, I think Facebook has broken the code on social media. You have the secret weapons. You have true identity, which really matters. It keeps the trolls out. And you give people control of their privacy. I think those things will allow you to become as big or bigger than Google is today. And if you believe in that vision, we need to go to all the constituents, your parents, the management team, the employees, and explain to them why it's important for them to stick with you. What followed that should have been a, wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me. What I got instead was nearly five minutes of dead silence. Finally, finally, he relaxes and explains that the reason he was there was because what I had just described had happened the day before or a couple days before that. And he, and he canceled the merger opportunity and so began a three-year period where I was one of his advisors and met with him at least uh, once a month and often a couple times a week. So you, in those days, were a key advisor? You and your firm later invested in Facebook? I was a huge fan, a huge fan. I mean, the mission of the company is to make the world more open and connected because we believe that um, you know, everyone is going to have a much better experience when they're doing different things with their friends, right? When there's more information out there or you can discover great content through your friends or you can discover new food that you want to eat or places to run or anything like that, um, your world just becomes a lot richer. Mark Zuckerberg there talking to the BBC in 2011. That vision of Facebook changing life for the better was one Roger McNamee shared for a decade. In that time, Facebook grew to become the world's largest social media company. But then, a few years ago, Roger started noticing things that made him question what the platform was being used for. Negative political posts seemed to get more traction than positive ones. And user data collected by Facebook was also sold and used for questionable purposes. Very beginning of 2016, I'm on Facebook as I would have been several times a day, in that period, and noticed advertisements, really not advertisements, they were, they were images depicting Hillary Clinton in really misogynistic ways. And they were coming from Facebook groups that were ostensibly associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I didn't know what to make of it, but I thought it was troubling. And then two months later, Facebook expelled a group that was using the advertising tools to gather information about people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. That company then sold the data they gathered to police departments, which is a massive civil rights violation. I was just shocked and offended that such a thing could happen. But again, Facebook did the right thing. They expelled the group. The challenge was that the harm had already been done. A few months later, Brexit. And Brexit was the first time that I questioned whether Facebook's advertising model, the basic way that the algorithms worked, gave an unfair advantage to inflammatory campaign messages, where in an election context, a neutral message would get 
next to no emotional lift. Something that was really, you know, either xenophobic or fear-based would potentially be far more viral and that that might be dangerous in a democratic sense. Eventually, just before the U.S. presidential election in 2016, Roger felt so strongly that he put his concerns in an email to the two most powerful people at Facebook. That's what you heard at the start. So what sort of response did he get? They got back to me right away. In fact, they were incredibly polite. But it was really obvious from the first that they viewed my opinion piece as a public relations problem, not indicative of a problem with the business. And so began a process that lasted three months where they handed me off to a friend of mine who was one of their senior aides to essentially have him address my concerns or put better to make my concerns go away. But Roger's concerns didn't go away. They grew. And he became more vocal, even though he does remain a shareholder. One of Roger's key complaints relates to something that is probably all too familiar to many of us. The question I ask everybody is, in the morning, when do you first check your phone? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because for most people, it's going to be one of those two things. We are all, to one degree or another, addicted to our smartphones. We're addicted to the applications on them. And Facebook has been the most successful at monetizing that. Social media companies are businesses that depend on advertising revenue, so it's no surprise that they are constantly looking for subtle new ways to keep us engaged so they can show us more ads. Roger says that the problem is that one of the most effective ways to do that is by ensuring users keep seeing content that provokes a strong psychological reaction. So they need to get you to spend a lot of time to see a lot of ads to make those ads worth something. And they do that by appealing to fear and to outrage. Essentially, they look through all the feeds that are available and they compare that to what their artificial intelligence knows about each user's triggers, the emotional triggers that get them to respond. And then they calculate what the news feed should look like in order to take you from whatever state you begin in to some form of fear or outrage. And they're not going to do this every time you're there, but they need to do it often enough to get you to see a lot of ads. The problem is that people who advertise on Facebook, if they have bad intentions, can take all the tools that were developed that make Facebook so successful for traditional advertisers and use those to manipulate people's attention and ultimately manipulate the things they believe. So that's a huge problem. Another problem for Roger is the amount of data that Facebook and Google gather about users and what is done with that information. For him, it goes way beyond what a business should legitimately expect to know about its customers and has become something more sinister. The larger issue, the one that goes way beyond Facebook and goes way beyond Instagram and to include Google, YouTube, and other members of the data economy, is that they're not just capturing our photographs and the posts that we put up. They're capturing a lot of incidental signals, things that... Uh, we don't aren't even conscious of our location, the time of day, the path we took before we made a post and then the path we take afterwards, where we travel on the web. And by assembling all that data into an artificial intelligence and into a machine learning system, they can develop tremendous insights, not so much about us, but about whole populations, people who look like us. And the reason this is so dangerous is 
first, we're not conscious of it. But second, the whole goal of this is to create a marketplace of predictions about our actions and for platforms like Facebook and even like YouTube, they have the opportunity to influence, once you, the prediction is there, to actually influence to ensure that the prediction comes true. And so essentially our, our future, the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next few days, maybe the rest of our lives, are being influenced by people who are profiting from our actions without our having any clue that this is going on. I'm Mike Wendling, and this week on Trending, I'm talking to former Facebook insider Roger McNamee about why he thinks social media and companies like Facebook and Google are harming society and what we can do about the problem. I think that we're dealing with an industry that's causing harm across so many different areas that each one of us has an opportunity to contribute. And I have great hope because as the human beings formerly known as users... We have much more power than we realize. We do have the power to change our behavior. McNamee wants to break up the near-monopoly position enjoyed by a handful of huge online companies who are able to collect so much data about their users. One way of doing that is to boycott those companies and try to use smaller alternatives instead. He's devised a novel way to do that. There are substitutes. For example, I've converted, you know, I've decided to leave Google about a year and a half ago. And I've turned it into a video game. You may recall a game called Frogger, where your character is a frog trying to get across a river by hopping yes, on logs that are moving down the river. Yes, by a car or, a... Or, or or whatever. But yeah. the way it is, I treat Google as the river, the logs are the alternative products, and I try to hop across the river and never touch Google. And of course, every once in a while, when I'm on the web, I'll be looking at a restaurant thing and inadvertently click the the map and it turns out to be a Google map and so I fall into the river and I have to start again. But I have, my, my high score is two months and I feel really good about that. There are other search engines out there. However, Roger admits some apps are harder to live without than others. I still use Facebook. Um, I've been able to wean myself from Google, which was unbelievably hard, but I play in a rock and roll band, and the whole band lives on on our fans. We all live on Facebook. And I have a book that's aimed at people who use Facebook and Instagram, and so I have to be able to reach them on those platforms. But I've changed my behavior completely. I don't let them hit my emotional buttons. I don't engage in political things. I don't read news there anymore. And I post hardly anything at all. Do you really have hope that people are listening to you that – people can fight back against these corporations that are incredibly powerful. I cannot overstate my excitement about the response to Zucked, which is the name of my book, but also to this movement. I've been on a book tour and the audiences have been astonishingly large, you know, hundreds of people at every event. And that is just an amazingly pleasant surprise. People of all types and their parents worried about their kids, their grandparents worried about their kids and grandchildren. There are people worried about themselves. There are people worried about democracy, people who are worried about the economy, people worried about public health. And so I am really encouraged. Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence, we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. 
Over the past couple of years, Facebook has come under scrutiny around the world as never before. When Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress in April last year, he began by apologizing for a series of scandals which had knocked public confidence in the platform. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. So Facebook says it gets the concerns about its impact. It's promised changes. Mark Zuckerberg recently announced his intention to create a so-called Supreme Court for Facebook. It would be an independent body that would rule on what sort of content can be posted on the platform. But despite the mea culpas, Roger questions whether Facebook is seriously committed to making harm reduction a priority. The people that I have spoken to who have talked to them more recently than I have confirm a suspicion I've had all along, which is that Mark has a belief that connecting everyone in the world is the most important thing anyone could do right now. And it's so important, it justifies any means necessary to get there. I think the problems are still getting worse. And I think there is little hope at this point that Facebook or Google will take the steps necessary to solve the problem. I mean, the thing that's really incredible is how little Google has done. Google's guilty of many of the same problems as Facebook. And in the area of elections, for example, they've done almost nothing uh, to limit interference on their platforms. And you can see this just by looking at YouTube, how much damaging information there is, how much disinformation there is, how much uh, harmful information is on there. And, you know, we have to change the incentives. And I'm afraid the only way to do that is in a language that the companies understand, which is finance. We have to make the cost of these mistakes so high that they change their business practices and change their business model to limit that damage. So Roger McNamee, who once advised a young Mark Zuckerberg not to sell Facebook and to pursue his vision, now thinks that heavy fines are the only way to force the company to change its ways. It's been reported that Facebook is negotiating with the U.S. regulator, the Federal Trade Commission, to pay a multi-billion dollar fine to settle privacy breaches, such as Cambridge Analytica's exploitation of user data. Roger believes such a fine would be a start, but won't be enough to bring about the culture change he wants to see. I think we have to find things that that make the pain persistent and uh, really make the incentives radically different to win. What does a Facebook look like where it is a thing that is providing more benefit and less harm? What, you know, is it, um, I mean, do people maybe even have to pay for it? I think realistically, the way I'm describing it, it, it's going to be a smaller business than it is now in terms of the revenue and profits because, you know, and by the way, that will go doubly true for for Google because I think that their ability to manipulate um, to 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 gather signals and create a forecasting business around people's behavior that is enormous threat and needs to be regulated very tightly. I believe they will 
have a viable business doing that as long as it's well regulated and everyone is aware of what's going on. Whether they charge for the product or not, I think is really up to them. In hindsight, if you went back to that conference room where you were counseling 22-year-old Mark Zuckerberg, is there anything that you would have done differently at that meeting or later on when you were one of his advisors? Well, hang on. I mean, that would have required me to be able to uh, have a crystal ball and predict things that were still several years in the future. Sure. <laughs> and here's the thing. I I wish that Facebook and Google would behave responsibly, recognize that there are stakeholders entitled to a voice in their actions, you know, that I wish that they'd understood the responsibility of dominating the public square in every democracy in the world, that they have accumulated massive political power without being elected and without being accountable. Roger McNamee, an early Facebook investor turned critic. We asked Facebook and Google for responses. Google sent us a statement from Christy Canigallo, their vice president for trust and safety. She told us that providing useful and trusted information is enormously complex. And the statement went on to say, we have 20 years of experience in these information challenges, and it's what we strive to do better than anyone else. So while we have more work to do, we've been working hard to combat this challenge for many years. Facebook told us, we take criticism seriously. Over the past two years, we've fundamentally changed how we operate to better protect the safety and security of people using Facebook. They also said that Roger McNamee hasn't been involved in Facebook for a decade. That's it for this episode of Trending. My thanks to Ed Main and to our audio engineer, Neil Churchill. Our editor is Jeremy Skeet. One last question, and it's for you, dear Trending listener. What did you think? Let me know. My email is michael.wendling at bbc.co.uk. Thanks for listening. BBC Trending will be back in your podcast feed again soon, in about a week. <laughs>